I'm Yuni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Happy Hanukkah, Jonathan. Hanukkah Sameach to you, to your need. I'm looking, I know we're going to talk about Hanukkah, but let's get to the main event here. So much change going on because you were moving house last week. Now I see there is a change in your sartorial style. Well, not sartorial style. What is the word? Tonsorial style. Hair. <laughs> You've had a haircut. <laughs> And I've had a haircut, but that is not, millions of viewers are not going to be bothered by me having a haircut, but you've had one and this is dramatic. What's very sweet is that you actually, we talked a few days ago and you didn't notice my hair, but we're not going to make you look bad. Um, (laughs) It's my, yes, it's my winter do. I cut off uh, some of my hair. I don't know why for winter I like it shorter because it, I don't know, because, you know, turtlenecks and huge sweaters and... Less hair is better. I don't know. See, that's Whatever. counterintuitive to me. To say about it. What? That's counterintuitive to me because I would have thought summer is when one wants shorter hair. Exactly. Partly, so, so I wanted to surprise you. Counterintuitive you, is what I do. Yeah. No, that's very good. Um, so uh, new haircut, new season. We're going well, to be talking. Why are we talking about my haircut? When you got a haircut too. Yeah, but as I say, there aren't attentive viewers who who, <laughs> who, who, who are watching out for my haircut. That's really not a story. There's no paparazzi. The funny, you know outside. what the funny thing about television is that you would do you would say like I'm getting ready for this big interview with the prime minister and I spent three nights and I asked the question like this and I was pleased with the way the answer and the headline or whatever and then you'd get 30 messages I like your hair yeah so yeah that is the nature of the medium it's um no it's true unfortunately and I just fell right into that trap I walked right into it I actually created the trap for yourself and then stepped into it yeah no I'm the (laughs) typical viewer I'm afraid um so we're obviously going to talk about Hanukkah later but before we do that because we have much celebratory talk in line and in mind I have to tell you I had a little jolt to my system this week because I saw a headline about Israel preparing for a fifth wave of COVID. And I have to tell you, this is depressing for me, because I'm one of those people who has been looking to Israel as the sort of pioneer trailblazer in its COVID dealings. And until now, the the news had been quite positive, suggesting, you know, the booster works and look at Israel, you don't have to fret. And so fifth wave headlines is not what I wanted, Yonid. I apologize for that, Jonathan. I'll try and cater the headlines for what makes you happy. But uh, first of all, anyone who was listening to Unholy a few weeks ago and listened to our Israeli, our own Israeli Dr. Fauci, Dr. Sharon Ulrey Price, talking about her concerns about uh, the fifth wave. So um, look, what is happening, and I, I think we should be sort of clear about this, uh, is not that the booster shot uh, and, and, and its efficacy is waning. This is not what is happening. Actually, a lot of the studies that have been done here are showing that the booster is actually pretty effective. The problem is the overhaul immunization of the whole uh, uh, Israeli um, population. And when you look at those numbers, there are a lot of uh, problems. First of all, the one million Israelis who took two jabs and for some reason didn't go to get the booster shot. Then you have 700,000 Israelis who didn't take any uh, vaccine whatsoever. And of course, the issue of children that only this week of beginning to children, small children, five to 11, only this week are beginning the, the immunization process. So either we're, it's just a bump in the road and we're going to be talking in a few weeks and saying, okay, you know, things have settled down. Right now, the problem is, as I said, the sort of whole uh, immunization of, of the population. It is I don't know if the word is upsetting, maybe that's too large a word, but Israel is, as you said, supposed to be the trailblazer. We were the first with the vaccines. We were the first with the booster shots. We should have been 
in a better situation than we are uh, right now. But it is that big number, uh, I think, that 700,000 who haven't even had one jab. That, to me, is the bit that makes me think, okay, I can sort of breathe out a bit here because Israel does have, as well as this amazing status as being the sort of forerunner, it does have this particular problem. I think America has the same problem too, which is a block of people who are, to use a word that has a different history, but a kind of refusenik population. Mm-hmm. Um, in America, it's absolutely wrapped up with politics. It's Republican voters is the biggest predictor of whether or, or not you're refusing to have a vaccine if you voted for Donald Trump. That's a good sign that you're a refusenik. But in Israel, we talked about it right at the start of this whole thing, those blocks of population, um, ultra-Orthodox Jews, Arab Israelis, who were reluctant, reticent at the beginning. Now, I know because we've talked about it, there was some real inroads made into those groups and and more did take up the vaccine. But I'm I'm guessing there are large parts of that 700,000 block who've never had even one jab who overlap with those two groups. Look, you're you're pointing to those who never had a vaccine. I'm interested and I'm curious about the million Israelis again yes. remember it's a population of nine million a million Israelis who went who to, who have no objections were not you know uh, suspicious of the government or anything they went and they got the two first vaccines and now they're saying I don't want another one I mean what is the rationale there uh, to, for these people to realize that actually the third booster seems to be more effective in a long-term uh, capacity than the first two. So that is an interesting. And in any case, you're also having a large number of teenagers who now need to get the, their booster. You have about 240,000 people who are recovering who now need to, need to get a vaccine. So there are numbers, large numbers here that still need to be inoculated for this to be over. I remember we have in our network, our own resident Sanjay Gupta, his name is Professor Gabi Babash. And I remember asking him around May of 2020, I said, when will this be over? And he said, he's always been pretty prescient. He said, there's going to be a vaccine sooner than you think, and this will be over when they vaccinate children. So I'm, you know, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that he was right about this and that we are beginning to see the end. In which case, actually, it's still quite a long time. We haven't even Mm -hmm. begun with the vaccination of young children. But this thing about the booster, the third time (laughs) is the charm, does seem to be the message. And again, Sharon Alroy-Price, I think, was giving us that message. It's all about the boosters. But if you cannot get, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but if you can't make him drink and a whole group of people who did took dose one and two won't take dose number three, that is a big problem. But in a way, look, okay, so my my earlier angst, I'm standing down the worry in the light of what you've said, because as long as people take that third dose, the Israeli evidence suggests actually there is a way out of this thing. Exactly. I'm proud to be your Doc Brown to your Marty McFly and say hello from your near future. This is what is supposed to happen. People need to take the third booster. Well, you I should it. work for the Ministry of Health, really. I'm, you know, you really I'm should. wasted I think on that, television. I think you should be roving around the world in a DeLorean <laughs> motor car saying, I am the message, emissary from your future and you've got to take your third booster. I think this would be a very effective campaign. Regardless. We go back to the hair. I know. I was going to say, you don't have the Professor uh, Brown hair. Um, what was he called? Was he Professor Brown or something else? Doc Brown. Doc Brown. Okay, Doc Brown. Maybe yes. you should revisit the movies, Jonathan. Yes, Thinking, I should. I should do that now. Stop watching did, Ingmar Bergman's. Go back to Back to the Future. I did say at the beginning we are in jubilant and festive mood. Oh yes, because, look what I brought you. Can you see this? Do you oh, you on, know look. I do holidays with props. You know this. Look. What have you got? I got souffle oh, I got you the jelly, the fancy ones, and I have to tell you that I had um, twenty yesterday. 
I left them. I got a present from our good friend of the pod, Justin. He gave me 20 sufganiyots and I went to work and there were two left. So <laughs> Yeah, when you said I had 20, I thought there is no way Yoni Levy ate no, 20 No, 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 donuts. I put them on the counter. Oh, come on. I put yes. them on the counter and I left. And when I came back after work, all there gone. were two. And now I have to, like the miracle of Hanukkah, I have to make them work for eight days one of them is cut is glazed in an icing of a color not known in nature that is a let's have a look at them again that yellow one the the yellow yellow one you want the yellow one well i'm just looking at it thinking that is a terrifying color (laughs) that is that's going to do no because if it wasn't for the color then sufganiyots are so healthy that you it's just (laughs) the color that's off-putting so donut we're in the season of donuts and latkes it is hanukkah as we um as people hear this hanukkah's already (laughs) begun in the united states it's also thanksgiving weekend i seem to remember i don't know whether it was last year but it was certainly an early year where hanukkah and um christmas collided and coincided now you know people were talking about christmas now it's i saw the most awful coinage thanksgiving which is just a terrible (laughs) terrible crime against language um but no, that that to me is always a, a big issue when it does when a Jewish festival coincides or collides with, uh, you know, a, a, a one in the world at large. But uh, Hanukkah is upon us, and I think um, I'm interested because we've touched on this a little bit about your present giving habit for Rosh Hashanah, and we yes. talked about Halloween and how that's different. You know, this to me seems a big one about difference between. Israel and the diaspora and what Hanukkah is like in the two places. So I I have marked Hanukkah in Israel a couple of times, but my memory of it is a bit hazy. I can tell you what it's like here, but I'm keen to know what you're planning or doing there. I'm first of all, I was just wondering when we were looking at the Sufganiyot, now that we're living in this whole gluten-free, sugar-free world, <laughs> is like food for for were we just gonna supposed to supposed to be drinking oil for Hanukkah? Is that what <laughs> the only thing we've got left? Um Look, we we did indeed have this argument about uh, about presence in Hanukkah, and it, it, it's important because it's indicative, I think, of the way it is celebrated differently. Um, Hanukkah is a relatively, I think, important holiday in Israel. There's not so much religion in it. Let's let's admit, right? I mean, the whole halacha requirement here is to light candles put them in a place as public as you can for everyone to see. But that is basically what you need to be doing. There are, there are more requirements in Purim than there are in Hanukkah. And I think that every, you know, at the end of the day, any any holiday that's symbol is a candle um, and that symbol is light is a very optimistic holiday. It's, it's, it's loved here. We talked, our argument was about presence. And I think we had that discussion about when, you know, Christmas in, the, I'm sorry, Hanukkah, in diaspora being that emulating a little bit or used to be maybe emulating Christmas and trying to make it a little more shiny, especially for Jewish children. Um, I'm not sure if that's still the case, by the way. You should tell me. Well, present giving does happen, but it doesn't happen, I think, in in as big a way as uh, as Christmas. I don't think, um, you know, I think look, there will always be exceptions of people who go really you know, overboard and intense. We, you know, the exchanging of little gifts, symbolic, token. Not eight gifts, like one gift. Well, no, for for young children, I think the idea of doing eight okay. definitely was a thing when I was growing up and still happens. And I, as I say, I think before I've said that there was a sort of compensatory element, which is, okay, you're not getting Christmas, but look, this is better than your non-Jewish friends because it goes on for eight uh, nights. So you get a little, but it's little, I think. The <laughs> idea of, you know, going going all out and doing the big retail blowout. I don't think that um, 
you know, but I may be speaking only about, you know, my own family, my own world, friends of mine, etc. And then that does definitely does re- recede as people get older. And the I don't see much sort of adult to adult gift giving in a major way. Uh, I think it's more little and symbolic. Okay. Um, but it's obviously, yes, it's been partly a sort of concession to or an attempt to approximate uh, Christmas. There are bits about it that I really like, even though I know that it's easily mocked. I mean, one bit uh, peculiar, you know, I've said a lot of critical things about my neighbourhood before over the, no, over the months we've been I talking. No, I notice. My little, uh, my little patch of Haredi, North London. Here's a bit, <laughs> in, this, in these eight days, I have to say, I love living where I live and I love my neighbours with uh, uh, uncomplicated uh, joy. And that is because my little bit of North London becomes kind of Anatevka um, for these eight nights yeah. because people really do put the Hanukkah in the window and and along the street you will walk along and see the candles burning in each, pretty well each window because it's, uh, you know, he- heavily uh, Haredi neighbourhood and it looks very, very beautiful. And I have to say, we didn't do that when I was a child and it's made me think about it differently, whether for all my sense that uh you know my own parents and family were very kind of out as Jews they did draw the line there they didn't do that you know that neither of my parents are around now so I can't ask whether the real reason was you know they feared a kind of fire hazard it may well be that that they thought they were going to put the curtains in flames but we didn't do that and um and yet my Haredi neighbors who are absolutely unabashedly out as Jews they do do that and it looks very beautiful so so your parents didn't do that Although, as you say, they're very proudly Jewish. Do you do it? I mean, would you put the out in the, or you don't do it because they didn't do it? I mean, how does no, that? No, no, I do do it, and uh, but it is it's very elaborate for because we just don't have a kind yeah. of table by the window, and so we have gone to such lengths uh, to make sure <laughs> you're just holding the, it the whole night. Well, by the window, we, right? I, I, if I tell you that a stepladder has been involved <laughs> in order to get the Hanukkah to reach window level. <laughs> Um, I, I am not completely lying. With that, that has we've we've gone to those extreme lengths. So, uh, yeah, it's a new custom in my life, but I like it, and I think it's quite sort of admirable. You know, I think first of all, I I like Hanukkah for several reasons. One of them being that my grandmother, who well into my late twenties, uh, insisted on giving me uh, Hanukkah guilt on Hanukkah, which was the, you know, I, and I would argue this at one point, I would just say, okay, this is what she wants because that this is what her grandmother did uh, to her. And now it's her turn. And, and that is something that I loved. Um, also, we, we have to say that, you know, the Hanukkah story just ties in so neatly with the, with the Zionist narrative, right? I mean, it worked very well in the early days of, of Israel, right? The story of the Maccabees and fighting against this huge uh, army, right? And winning over and, and succeeding in, in sort of uh, uh, taking uh, Jerusalem and, and, and rededicating the temple. So it's a story that worked very well, even if you take out the religious elements of it, it worked very well. And I think that's why it still speaks to Israelis sort of every, across every divide, um, you know, and we have good songs. I don't know if all of them translate into English. 
Uh, I love Hanukkah songs. I think Matzor is an absolute banger, uh, as my <laughs> kids would say. Um, there is a view that it is, in fact, that Jews invented Christmas carols. And this is a quite yes, interesting they, they, theory. They, what do you mean? That they wrote? That they well, they certainly wrote Christmas. the big Christmas carols. Yeah. White Christmas is written by Irving Berlin, who, of course, sure. was a Jewish immigrant from Siberia. Um, but Matzor, the idea, you know, it has a kind of Christmas carol y feel to it. Um, I think it's a beautiful song. Um, so no, I'm all I'm all in for all of that aspect of it. I'm interested in your point about Zionist narrative because you know that kind of cuts a couple of ways. Uh, you, in the sense of this is rem- remarkable. I knew you'd on, like that one. Yeah. I threw it. It's my warm latke from me to you. I knew you'd like that one. Um, I, have we? Has our executive producer just posted the lyrics of Mars <laughs> or as a chat message? Az Zigmor Bishim. No, I think it's the, the no. What I was going to say is, it's the idea of commemorating hardcore fanatics who not only were <laughs> you know ready to take up arms against external enemies, but really had scores to settle with their own fellow Jews who they regard as being insufficiently steel yeah. so spine. You want to start talking about who Saint Valentine was? Of course, the backstory is a little. It's a little intricate. <laughs> and if you want to be petty after winning over the Greek, a hundred years later, the Romans came. Fine, Jonathan. Thanks for reigning on the parade in this. Yes, but you're Well, right. it's, an, it's, a, no, it's, a, it's a super Zionist story in the sense it's a, it's a parable <laughs> against assimilation, and that has real resonance for diaspora. Um, and so that's a, that's a big part of it. But uh, yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an optimistic story. It's a feel-good story. We like it because... So often our festivals are a bit kind of gloomy in some of their themes. This one is about, uh, you know, uh, it all working out in the end and a miracle and lots of light, gifts, luckers and abnormally glazed donuts. <laughs> Who could not love uh, Hanukkah? So you're taking so, the pink or the yellow? Just tell me. I think I might go for the unnatural yellow. Um, okay. So I like it. Thank FedExing you. FedExing it to you. FedEx that to me. That would be very lovely. Um, so Hanukkah Tzameach to everyone um, for that. But um, we should move on to more substantial matters because substantial matters are still happening in the world, even with Hanukkah. Indeed. Uh, well, let's talk about what's been dominating the news uh, here in Israel this week, and that is uh, Netanyahu's trial. Remember that? That's still going on, uh, Jonathan. We're pretty much still in the early stages, uh, but this week saw a key witness um, testifying. The man is Nir Chefetz. Nir Chefetz is one of three Netanyahu's aides turned into state witness against him. He's the one who I would call diehard with vengeance. Um, he <laughs> used to be Netanyahu's media advisor, media fixer, really. Um, he's been a, he was a journalist for many years, a senior editor, um, and then he became Netanyahu's advisor. For him, I think it didn't seem like a massive crossing from being a journalist to being uh, the advisor to the prime minister. I mean, for him, it didn't seem like walking too many miles. Maybe the British um, comparison would be Andy Coulson, right, who was the editor uh, of the News of the World, I believe, and then crossed and became uh, David Cameron's communications director. Yes, I'm, case, I'm sure Nir Hefetz is going to love that comparison because Andy <laughs> Coulson ended up in jail um, for the phone hacking scandal. But yeah, well, why not? Let's run with that. Yeah. So, so uh, again, we, we, this is the man, and we'll talk about him in a minute. We just need to pause and remind our listeners, I think, what the accusations are. Again, Netanyahu is standing trial for three different corruption cases, the most severe of which and the case in which Nir Chefetz is indeed a key witness is what is called uh, a case 4000. Um, and he is standing, Netanyahu's standing trial of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Now, what the prosecution here needs to prove is that Netanyahu, while being prime minister and communications minister, 
pushed regulatory steps for the benefit of a media mogul, um, and in exchange received positive news coverage in this media mogul's news site called Walla, essentially took over the news site. And what Hefetz has been describing this past week on the stand is really an obsessive, what he called beyond control freak prime minister. You know, he said down to the comma of everything that has to do with him and especially his family. Um, This is not, how shall I say it? It's not new to anyone following the uh, Netanyahu family, but just the, 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 the details in, in it. And of course, the fact that someone so close to the actual occurrences in the most important intersections recorded the prime minister in parts of these uh, um, conversations is really pretty uh, mind-boggling. Again, you still have to prove the other part of it, which is that Netanyahu led to uh, regulatory benefits for this, for it to be a criminal case. We were talking a minute ago about Christmas carols, um, which is the famous, obviously famous Charles Dickens novel. What you're describing to me is almost the other Charles Dickens story, Jarndyce versus Jarndyce, the legal case that ran on for decades and decades and decades until by the end of it, no one could even remember what the legal dispute was about. This has a feel of that. The idea that we are only at really the relative early days of this trial is extraordinary. I think this has gone on for so long. Of course, it had these very sort of multiple full starts because constantly when he was prime minister, he was spending a huge amount of argument over saying whether or not he should be able to be indicted as a sitting prime minister, etc. But the, you know, this is going to go on and on and on. It struck me that the, you know, the politics of it being back in the news again were, if if anything, advantageous to the current government, um, because when Netanyahu is in the news in this way, meaning reminding people that he is in the dock, it also reminds people why there is a different and new government. I mean, the one thing, we, we've said it on this podcast, that brought together Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid, multiple parties of the left and right, an Islamist party, and so on, was that they thought this man was too legally questionable to be prime minister. And, you know, the, uh, the, the, this acts to put that front and centre again. And I think if, you know, if I was Yael Lapid or Naftali Bennett, I'd be grateful that every day this long-running legal case continues because in some ways it reminds people of the raison d'etre of the government. Yeah, and not only, I mean, I'm, I'm going to add on to that. Look, Netanyahu obviously did not want to arrive at this point in this way. Uh, He did everything in his power while prime minister, either to um, circumvent the trial or once the trial started to make it, to delay it as much as possible. He wanted to, if he had to sit in that courtroom, to be there as a prime minister. Um, And the fact that he isn't is is, is, is his biggest problem. And what his detractors would say is not only is he in legal hot water, but we have to see what he tried to do to the Israeli judicial system in order to get out of of trial. And that is the big danger of what, you know, what he represents. That is what his, that is what Naftali Bennett would say, that is what Yair Lapid would say. And as you say, it's very advantageous for them that this is happening now. Look, there are many Israelis who look at this case and say, we've made up our mind this way or the other. It will take a very long time. But again, Netanyahu did not want to be in this courtroom as a former prime minister. And, um, and the, the effect yeah. on him, 
I, I absolutely, by the way, take your point that the issue was his attempt to sort of subvert the rule of law and legal system and use his authority or power as prime minister to thwart the you know, process of justice. So that, of course, the key issue. Uh, but the, what this is doing to his reputation interests me because it's, you know, we, we assume his he's control of Likud is all, almost indefinite and, and, and forever. Do, you know, I saw a headline saying the incredible shrinking Netanyahu, you know, that the process of being in the dock as a former rather than current prime minister is diminishing him day by day. And I'm, I'm interested to know whether what your read of that is, whether among his own supporters, not his critics, of course, they couldn't stand him anyway, but among the Likud faithful, does the sight of him as a kind of civilian, as it were, in the dock, reduce him and reduce his standing? Well, I think it's something that might happen over time. Um, remember that we are not yet six months into the Lapid-Bennett government. The more time passes and Netanyahu is not the prime minister and doesn't have the power and doesn't have the power uh, that he had over the Likud, that will make a difference. I don't know how much of what is happening inside the courtroom is actually making a difference for, to his supporters in the Likud because they have their same case. It's a fabricated case against Netanyahu. Everything is made up. Whatever is said in there doesn't uh, rise, rise to the bar of a criminal case. They know the text. They don't need to listen to everything that has been said. Nothing is shocking them to this point. But again, as time goes by, and less and less power that he has over his own party, I think we're going to see some significant changes uh, in the Likud. But it will still take time. And it's not doing any harm to their standing. The Likud as a party apparently still, you know, out front, mm. largest single party in the polls. Obviously, the government is made up of a whole series of splinter or smaller parties, and therefore not one of them has managed to sort of break out as being right. ahead. Thanks. But um, no, I think it's, look, I think it's ultimately healthy for Israel on a kind of rule of law level, that this thing which he was determined that would never happen is happening. The parallel I can't help but um, draw in my mind, and I have done, uh, you know, all the way through this, is with Donald Trump, who, you know, there are many, many legal questions for him uh, to face. And it's a big question for America whether he will ever actually be in court. And, you know, it's a test in a way of a country's legal system if even the highest and mightiest are eventually brought to account. Israel is proving that, you know, it does do that. It's proved it multiple mm -hmm. times before. You know, a former president, a former prime minister have served jail time in recent memory in, in the form of Moshe Katsav and Ehud Olmert. So, you know, this is not a new thing, but it's healthy ultimately for the system. In the Trump case, um, you know, Biden could do with an equivalent of this, actually, to remind mm -hmm. people why Joe Biden was necessary. Trump in the dock would be very helpful for him. And the January the 6th committee investigation isn't hasn't quite got the juice mm -hmm. of, you know, a Jerusalem courtroom, which is just a very vivid dramatization of why a change of government was, in the end, on some level necessary. Yes, but we will go back and forth on this because this trial is going to last a very, very long time. Yeah, um, it's Dickensian in its scope. So you and I will um, come back to it. Uh, we thought we should do um, a little twist on our usual uh, chutzpah and mensch award uh, distribution ceremony. And what is our little twist that you and I have plotted? <laughs> We have cancelled. We we uh, decided the chutzpah awards will uh, go up in flames this week. We're oh. not doing. We're in a festive mood, so we're not doing chutzpah. We're just doing mensch. See, that's how what lovely that's... people we are. We're so sweet and nice. 
Um, this is a change, obviously, from me hogging the uh, Mensch Award. Now, your ruse to get in on the action is to make sure that both of us have a exactly. Mensch that Award. That was my only way. My it was only the only way. It but do, would you, you like to start? I'm being the I will start. uncharacteristically I, I, I polite Israeli. I will start. I'm going to begin with our journalistic colleague, Steve Rosenberg of the BBC. He is the BBC's very long-time Moscow correspondent. He's been there uh, a long while. He's a very brilliant correspondent and, and uh, just a sort of fixed point in BBC's coverage of Russia. He's been doing it so long. But this, uh, in the last week or so, he has done something very brave, which is he went head-to-head with Alexander Lukashenko, the uh, autocratic ruler, dictator of Belarus, often described as the last uh, dictator in Europe. And it was just a very dramatic interview. Uh, He interviewed him in Russian, uh, and he just was really firm, um, Rosenberg. And Lukashenko absolutely was, was kind of... Uh, vicious back to Rosenberg saying that he was, you know, spreading lies on behalf of the West and uh, everything he said was untrue. And calmly and uh, solidly and steadily, Rosenberg just kept coming back at him, confronting him with the facts about, uh, you know, protests in his country, political prisoners in his country, brutal crushing of dissent, of peaceful protesters being beaten up. And he said it again and again to Lukashenko's face, even as Lukashenko really did do a full sort of gangster number on Steve Rosenberg saying, you know, being quite threatening to him. It was just admirable journalism. Uh, You know, in your field of TV journalism, I just think it was uh, a really admirable example of courageous, fearless interrogation. It felt to me, and I told you this, it felt to me like he was sitting in a cage with a tiger and he could tame it. He, he were, it was pretty impressive. And the other thing I could think of is Ariel Sharon had this line that he said, I'll say it in Hebrew. He said, No one ever regretted not giving an interview. Um, and that is something I thought of on Lukashenko's side. I was like, why would anyone do that? Uh, he didn't come off, how shall we say it, very um, democratic in that in that interview. No, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall in the meeting in Minsk, where they said, yeah. you know, Mr. President, this will be a really good idea for him. <laughs> I suppose in a way, I mean, some of the people have picked up here saying, you know, he has at least... Uh, offered himself for interview, that's more that can be said for X and naming a politician who won't face the cameras. But no, I agree, it didn't do much for his democratic credentials, but uh, a reminder of our mention of the week, Steve Rosenberg and his rather exceptional and well, journalism. And well-deserved. And we, I will, since we said two Mensch awards instead of chutzpah, so um, we will in one of our next episodes talk about uh, Iran in depth, but now we're going to talk about television and the fact that the Israeli uh, series called Tehran won uh, a uh, International Emmy Award for drama series, and we're uh, pretty proud. And we will send our listeners also to listen to our episode twenty-three of season one. I'm sure you remember this, Jonathan, with Richard Plepler. We discussed the uh, miracle that is Israeli television. Why does it work so well internationally? Uh, I think, of course, this is part of it. It is absolutely right. The, it is a phenomenon, Israeli TV, um, which is uh, exemplified by yet another Israeli TV show. I'm embarrassed that I haven't yet seen it, but I will, inspired by this 
Emmy Award. Um, so Tehran is uh, a big winner. And yeah, it just joins a long line. It's getting almost too many to mention of big Israeli TV shows. It began with In Treatment and Homeland. Fowder, okay. obviously massive, even in its own right. Uh, Shtisel, I'm a particular fan mm-hmm. of. Uh, so many of them. Uh, but Tehran has won, uh, bagged a very big prize. So uh, a special Hanukkah Mazal Tov to them. Yep. Um, we would love you to not only review and rate our podcast, which many of you are doing, but do subscribe on whatever platform you use for your podcast. That way you will never miss an edition of Unholy. It will drop automatically into your phone or other device that you may use for podcast purposes. Uh, so we would love it if you would do that. Um, we're glad to say the Unholy family is expanding. It's growing yes. all the time. More people, more of you are listening and more of you are recommending us to your friends. So we are very grateful. You get a kind of honorary ninth candle. Including we don't want them to m- uh, miss a special uh, episode of you singing all of the Hanukkah song. That's I right. Know. That's a special bonus edition. It's very hard to get on. That will happen only in my head. But still, it's a special <laughs> bonus edition. Do you, have you noticed, Mr. Friedland, that we have almost completed our cycle of Jewish holidays? Wow. When we started, our major holiday was Purim. Honestly, I wasn't sure we'd survive Pesach with your communist Haggadahs. But now, <laughs> look at us. Look We've at us. made We're it all Hanukkah. the way through. We've done Rosh, Yom, Sukkot. Uh, have we done a Shavuot together? I think we have. I think that's true, maybe, know, maybe, 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 but we've done a full cycle. We've done the whole, so we did the whole thing. The rabbi, the rabbi of the podcast will have to issue a ruling on that. <laughs> um, but no, we have, we've come through together. It's been wonderful. The miracle of Hanukkah is upon us. Uh, do join us again. Um, and as I say, subscribe if you can. And we should say thank you. And we should indeed to uh, Lior Friedman, our miraculous executive producer and Rom Atik head of podcasts, Yair Bashan and Iradishin for original music and happy Hanukkah everyone Hanukkah Tzameh we'll speak next week Inshallah